The Church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Happy New Year, Church. Um, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Nathan Card, and I'm a lead pastor here. You know, I love it when we have these special Sundays when worship falls on a holiday because all of the real Christians come to church. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. <laughs> No, it's, 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 it's really a special time because um, we know that you have an unusual schedule during this time of year, like we all do, and I also know that it gives us an opportunity for some who typically attend our early worship service and those who attend our later service to kind of cross-pollinate, and you get to see some people that we might not normally be able to see unless we're having outdoor worship or some other church-wide event. So welcome on this Sunday when we're remembering the baptism of Jesus and our identity in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. And God's people say together, amen. Amen. So I hope you've made your list. After this service, I'm going to go home, and my wife has already prepared a typical New Year's Day lunch. It includes black-eyed peas, as instructed in the book of Leviticus, because uh, we believe in all that kind of stuff. And when we gather around that meal, she's going to ask a question to all five members of our family. It doesn't matter if you're 10 all the way up to 41. Everybody's going to be asked what your New Year's resolutions are. And they're going to be kind of based around three areas. What do you want to resolve to do to improve yourself mentally? What do you want to resolve to do to improve yourself physically? And then what do you want to commit to do to improve yourself spiritually? Did I get them right? I got them right. Those three areas. And each member of our family has had an opportunity to prepare for that, and we'll discuss that together. And if you're like me, then most of your resolutions are going to be rather surface level. I'm going to do a better job this year of eating more whole grains and fresh fruits and vegetables. I'm going to do a better job this year about carving out times for hobbies that I enjoy. I'm going to be better about reconnecting with old friendships. I'm going to be more present with my spouse or my children. I'm going to finally start that novel or that book. I'm going to try to shed these muffin tops and the 12 to 15 that I put on between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I'm going to take better care of myself in terms of my mental health care this year. All of these different kind of categories are healthy, appropriate. In some ways, we could even say that they are... um, A good idea in the eyes of God as we try to improve ourselves and grow into the people that God wants us to be. But what I want to suggest to you today is that for Christians, there's a much more important way to begin. And it doesn't begin at the level of making a list of things we want to change in our routines and habits, all as important as they can be. Instead, it it begins not with something we do, but something we accept which is the truth about who we are as God's family and the individual identity that I have, not in what I do, but in who God says I am and can become. And so we begin today by remembering this year our baptism. But instead of moving quickly to Paul's epistles where he talks about what it means to be baptized, instead of going to a historical account of baptisms in the book of Acts, instead, we begin in the very first book of the Bible. 
Because I believe that the New Testament understanding of baptism that we have actually begins all the way back across the pages of time in the very first moments of God's creative work. In the first chapter of the Bible, on the culmination of God's creative work, days one through five on day six, day six, the scripture reads thus. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. You might read that story and see that the culmination of God's creative work to speak creation out of nothing is the creation of these, these stewards within the creation story. These human beings that are given, unlike any other created object or entity, they are given the image of God within them. They reflect God's nature. And God leaves them to be the managers or stewards over God's beautiful creation. And even that job title that God gives to the first humans, God looks at and says, it's good. But you know, you don't read very far into the story before you see that human beings do not simply accept this sacred responsibility from God. They try to seize control of their own destinies from God. And when given the opportunity to live in joyful obedience and enjoy all the provision and fruit of the earth for all of eternity, they seize control of their own way, allowing their pride to creep in and influence their choices, and they eat from the forbidden Fruit And so creation in Genesis chapter 3 begins to take a spiraling turn downwards and sin like an infectious disease begins to spread through all of God's creation. And if the first sin is Adam and Eve rejecting God's command to eat only from the tree of life and not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second sin is a sin of humanity against humanity as their offspring in sibling rivalry and conflict an older brother takes the life of the younger brother, and such is the setting and story of all humanity. We sin against God, and we sin against our neighbor. And the story devolves so quickly that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, God's ready to do something about it. God feels compelled to intervene because God's heart is broken. Julie led us in the scripture reading from Genesis chapter 6. Let's revisit those words as God is once again seeing God's creation, but this time... It is not good. The Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth and that every idea their minds thought up was always completely evil. What an indictment of the human condition. The Lord regretted making human beings on the earth and he was heartbroken. So the Lord said, I will wipe off the land, the human race that I've created, from human beings to livestock to the crawling things to the birds in the skies because I regret I ever made them. 
But as for Noah, the Lord approved of him. And so, you know the story of Noah and the ark. It's the kind of wallpaper that we put in the nursery rooms in all churches, even though it's perhaps the most disturbing and horrifying story in all of Scripture. And we know the story of of Noah and the ark, and we know that God calls Noah and his wife and then his three sons and their spouses. They build an ark, and then God brings the rain down upon the world. For 40 days and 40 nights it rains, a torrential downpour, and the waters begin to rise And all living things except those that have been encased within the ark are killed. And God's creation, in a sense, is being wiped clean. But God isn't done with humanity. God preserves a remnant of humanity. God always chooses to work with who God has rather than to discard us and throw us away altogether. And so, after the rains have come, and they've spent almost a year on the ark, waiting for the waters to recede, in Genesis chapter 8, there are some beautiful words of hope. In chapter 8, it says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded, just like the wind of God that had helped create and bring order out of the chaos in Genesis 1. The wind and spirit of God brings order as the waters begin to recede. But Noah has to figure out, having been on an ark for a year with a bunch of animals and with his close family, has to figure out when it's going to be safe for them to exit the ark. And so in verse 6, after 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Well, then he sent out a dove to see if the water receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a fleshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. And so because of that, Noah knew that it was safe for him and his family to leave the ark and to re-enter the creation that God had preserved. In this particular uh, icon of Noah and the ark, um, you can see that Noah's arm is outstretched in this uh, icon, which dates from around uh, almost uh, about 900 years ago. There's a Latin inscription on the background of this particular icon. And if you were to look at it very carefully, you would see Noah reaching out of the ark, extending his finger. The dove has an olive leaf um, branch on in its beak. And then in the waters upon which the ark is floating, if you look carefully, you can actually see the corpses that are floating there in the water. So this image captures both God's judgment but the promise of God's salvation in one image. It also, if you were to look carefully, shows the faces of other family members who were there upon the ark. And we don't have time to dissect them carefully, but each face has a very distraught look upon it. Because this is like the worst Airbnb ever. I mean, I, I can't think of another reason why they look so sour in this image. It's like, get us off of this ark. We've been with our family. We've got all these animals. We're ready to get out of this thing. So this is the story of God's first attempt in the Scriptures to set creation to rights. 
God has wiped out life on the earth except for a small remnant that God has preserved. This is a difficult story. And sadly, after all of that great effort that God goes to through Noah to preserve the human family and God's created animal life on the earth, it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. This is chapter 8. And later on, just a few verses later, God will make a covenant with Noah and with his descendants that God will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And God promises to preserve them. But... In the very next story, Noah plants a, lot, plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and experiences a terrible crime of his own children against himself that we don't even want to talk about in church. God's effort to clean and restore creation is thwarted once again because the problems are not only those that we observe with our physical eyes. The problem was an interior one of the human heart. And the flood may have been a reset button on creation, but human beings just as quickly thwarted God's plans and it begins to devolve into chaos again. I don't know if you caught it in that story in chapter 8 when Noah sends out the dove the first time and the second time, but the third time... After the dove had returned the olive branch, the dove doesn't return again. We, we assume that the dove just, just leaves and is soaring over creation, perhaps looking for a place to make a new home. And we never hear from the dove again. And I have to wonder, I have to wonder if that, that dove just lighting upon the winds of time continue to fly over creation looking for a place in which to make its home. I have to wonder that. I wonder if it watched as God in a few chapters would call Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and God made a covenant with the children of Israel. I wonder if that dove as it floated above the world and watched over the ages of time the children of Israel descend into slavery in Egypt. I wonder if the dove was there when God spoke through a burning bush to an 80-year-old murderer named Moses to go back and set God's people free. I wonder if that dove was there watching them be liberated from slavery in Egypt after four centuries and then wander for 40 years as God's people learning how to establish God's tabernacle and learning to begin to practice and abide by the law of God given through the Ten Commandments and the Levitical law. I wonder if the dove was there as they moved into the promised land in the period of the judges and then the kings and then watched as the Assyrian Empire came down in the 8th century and took away the northern kingdom into exile, and watched as the Babylonians came down in the 6th century and took the southern kingdom away to exile. I wonder if the dove was watching all of the inner workings of God with God's people and seeing time after time that their problems originated as a problem in the human heart. We don't hear from the dove again, about the dove again, in the Old Testament. But in Mark chapter 1, in Mark chapter 1, the cousin of Jesus, his story of baptizing in the wilderness begins this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way 
a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make paths straight for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. With a leather belt around his waist, he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a... And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Friends, there are parallels between the story of the flood and the renewal of creation in Genesis chapter 8 and the story of the baptism of the Son of God to begin his three years of earthly ministry. One of my favorite renderings of the baptism of Jesus comes from a little bit of a kooky Spanish artist named El Greco. El Greco depicts the baptism of Jesus in this way. Now, this is from around 500 years ago. You can't necessarily make it all out at this distance. We'll zoom in in just a moment. But here you have Jesus in the foreground bottom of the image clothed only in a simple loincloth, almost as though he is newly born, the way we think about being born again. To the right of him in this image, his cousin John is leaned over him, and he's holding a scallop seashell out of which he's pouring water that he, we presume, he would have scooped from the Jordan, pouring water over the head of Jesus, just above Jesus. If you zoom in on this next image, Just above Jesus is a dove that is descending from heaven. You would see the heavenly Father's hands in the upper part of the image opened as the skies have been rent open, been torn open, much like the veil in the temple when Jesus dies. And the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus as John pours the waters of baptism over the head of Jesus. Now, in all likelihood, Jesus would have been immersed in the Jordan River. But the reason why paintings like this from the Renaissance period depict Jesus as having water poured over his head is because most baptisms in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance period in churches were of infants. And rather than immerse them in water, they would pour or sprinkle water over them. So oftentimes the baptism of Jesus is depicted in this way, kind of and a laying on of a current tradition onto the historical narrative of Jesus' baptism. So, there's the story of this dove from the ark flying over creation, and then oddly, perhaps beautifully, perhaps intentionally, when Jesus himself is baptized, the story of God's Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Let's hope that God's work of renewal and restoration in this baptism 
is more effective than the one where God flooded the earth to restore and wipe it clean a second time. And according to John the Baptist, it will work. I don't know if you heard in in the portion of Scripture, just before John actually baptizes Jesus, it says that John came from the wilderness preaching a repentance for sin. And people from the countryside and from Jerusalem went out to confess their sins. And then John. John says to all of these people who were there to say, we're sorry, we want to change our hearts and minds, we hope we can be forgiven. Will you baptize us? John baptizes them. But then he says to them, I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? I believe it's important because if baptism is only for the repentance of sins or for the forgiveness of sins, then all of us should be pursuing the baptism of John the Baptist. But instead... If the baptism of Jesus is not only about being forgiven, but about being filled and clothed with God's righteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit, then that's a totally different kind of identity. Do you hear the difference, friends? If baptism is only to say, I'm sorry for what I did, I hope I get another chance, then if you're like me, We should get baptized, every one of us, upon entry into this place every single Sunday. And when I come to the office Monday through Thursday, I'll come in here because I need it every single day. There must be something about Jesus' baptism which differentiates it from John's baptism. And I believe it does. It's not just an external washing away. It is the Holy Spirit cleansing the condition of the human heart which has been our great malady and threat all along. This is why the Apostle Paul can write to the church at Corinth in his second letter in chapter 5 with great confidence and give the church this understanding of baptism. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Scripture says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Would you read the bold part with me? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. Would you read this with me? So that in Him we might become righteousness of God. God had seen creation at the beginning and it was good. And then God saw that creation was only evil continually because the inclinations of the human heart were only evil continually. And so God reset not only creation in the flood, but later would pour out His Spirit upon His Son, and in His baptism we would be given a new kind of righteousness. And what has what does the Scripture say? When, G, when God the Father sees Him being baptized, 
This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased because the new creation was beginning. Church of God, please don't make your New Year's resolution start with some kind of behavior modification that you have the power to control. Start as a child of God asking for external divine help to remind you each day that you are clothed with the identity of Jesus Christ. And as we descend into the waters of baptism, Paul says in Romans, it's like descending into the waters of death. And as we are raised from the waters of baptism, it is like being united with Christ in His resurrection. That is the way to begin thinking about the 12 months that lie before us. And when you meet someone, who truly understands their identity is anchored in this new creation of Christ Jesus, you notice it, and it's attractive to you, and you remember it. I'm not proud of what I'm about to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I was a sophomore in college in Nashville, Tennessee. My part-time job was valet parking at Merchant's Bar and Grill on 4th and Broadway there in downtown. Some of you have been there. Some of you might want to repent for what you did while you were there. I had a job with some good friends from our university. And there was one day when there was a special event at Merchant's Bar and Grill. And we were going to have to work a really long shift, almost 10 hours. And so in this particular shift, there were going to be kind of ebbs and flows to the, the flow of traffic coming into the restaurant, which meant that there would be sometimes a lot of cars to park at once and other times not as many. And what we would do when we were working a shared shift, as I recall, there were about eight or ten of us that were working together. We were having to, to take the cars, you know, take the key, give them the ticket, and then because there were so many people coming, we had to go park about a quarter of a mile away and then hoof it back to merchants to get in line to take the next one. It was exhausting work. In addition to that, the weather was cold and it was raining. And so we were working. And our practice was to pool our tips. Whatever tips we got, at the end of the night, we put them in the bucket, and then we all divided it out evenly. Well, because there was an ebb and a flow to the work that day, there was one person who said, you know, I can work about the first four to five hours, but then I've got to get going. And so our supervisor said, well, I'll call someone else in to cover the second half of your shift. And while we were waiting in between the arrival and the departure of this large group that we were serving, I just got to thinking, I'm cold, I'm wet, my feet are exhausted, I'm tired. And now this person's going to show up and share in our tips. And I've been the one that's been working along with these other folks. Kept my thoughts to myself. But as we began the heavy part of the evening returning people to their vehicles, I got a really nice tip. $20 bill. And I drove the car. As I brought the car back up, I was on my way back with one of my colleagues, from one of my peers from the university, who was running beside me back a quarter of a mile to the parking lot. We were almost out of breath. And I was like, hey, I got a 20 on that last one. He was like, nice. And I was like, look, why don't we just split this rather than throw it in the pool? You know Dave just showed up. Like, I mean, we've been here working all day long. I don't feel like it's right that he gets part of this. And my friend, who had sleeves of tattoos on his arms, gauges in his ears, long hair, said, I'm not doing that. 
was like, we didn't have to know. He would never be the wiser. He was like, I'm not doing that. I was like, why? Why are you being so uptight? And he said, I'm not being uptight. I'm a Christian, and that dude is my neighbor. I'm not doing it. A few weeks later, a few weeks later, I was at the gym just exercising. And my friend with the arm sleeve tattoos, the piercings, who played on the soccer team for our university, was coming in from a practice and took off his jersey. And I saw a large tattoo there around his waist. It was a tattoo of chain links, large, thick chain links, all the way around his lower back, across his hips, and then at the front part of his hips, they began to break in the tattoo imagery. The links were shattering and falling apart. And I said, hey, what's the inscription between the links and the chain? And he said, it's the third verse of Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? And the lyric says, My chains fell off and my heart was free, and I rose and went forth and followed thee. And I was so convicted at my own deceit, my undermining of my friend, my dishonesty, and yet to this day, almost two decades later, so inspired by my friend David Ribello from Buffalo, New York, who had the integrity to follow Jesus and be right by his neighbor. Why? Because he had a different identity that God had given him. Brothers and sisters, have you made your list? Before you do, hear the good news. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and me. And because of that, we are part of God's new creation. May we pray. Thank you, God. Thank you is not strong enough a word, God, to express our gratitude for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, in the world. And I pray today, God, at the beginning of a new year, all of us are thinking back over the last 12 months about things that we wish we could go back and do differently. But God, as we look forward to this new year and we want to become a better version of ourselves, help us to lay that aside. And instead of becoming more authentically ourselves, help us to become more authentically like Christ. And may we begin this new year by receiving the identity that you give to us as your gracious gift, your amazing grace, the baptism of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And God's people say, Amen. The church at Rossbridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama, and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.